Tēnā koutou no mai, haere mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tane. Today, they came to New Zealand to make a better life, but now they're trapped. We only worked for eight weeks after we arrived in New Zealand, and then after eight weeks, we were out of a job. Then, the Defence Minister says it's time New Zealanders realised our part of the world isn't as safe as it once was. There's a range of views that New Zealanders hold, um, some I would describe as naive. We'll have that interview shortly, but first, the government has reached a half-billion-dollar cost-sharing deal with councils in Hawke's Bay to buy out uninhabitable homes and invest in climate-resilient infrastructure. The region is the first to reach a cost-sharing deal. It'll help to rebuild transport infrastructure as well as provide $70 million in flood protection for Wairoa. But there are still hundreds of homes across Hawke's Bay, Tairawhiti and Auckland with Category 3 status, meaning owners will be offered a buyout option. I sat down with Cyclone Recovery Minister Grant Robertson and began by asking him how much individual Hawke's Bay homeowners will receive. That's the subject for negotiation between the local council because they are in charge of the buyout programme and uh, the homeowner. Clearly it's going to be based on evaluation before all of this happened, but the detail of that is in the hands of the local authorities. We set ourselves up here to do a locally-led recovery recovery centrally supported. Um, Our central support's on the table now in terms of Hawke's Bay, but that detail is between local authorities and homeowners. From what you understand, though, is it likely to be a council valuation? Well, it'll be, that is up to them, and I'm not going to preempt that, but it certainly will be a valuation, obviously, before the event. Um, the exact way that they do that will be down to those local authorities. Do you, would you expect that homeowners would have an opportunity to contest those valuations? There's clearly going to need to be a process uh, for people to work through, and that's what the councils will now be working on. What the indication I've had is that they should, within about a month, be in a position to be making offers to people. Will the Tairawhiti and Auckland councils accept the 50-50 cost sharing for the buyout of Category 3 homes? We've good discussions taking place with both Tairawhiti and Auckland and we're making progress there. That's clearly the basis that we're moving forward on in terms of cost sharing. We said at the outset that the government could not pay for everything here. Uh, we've obviously want to support people who've been affected in these areas, but we've also got wider obligations to the rest of the country. Uh, we think it's a fair position, particularly when you sit at alongside the other support that we're doing, the flood protection work, the transport work that we've agreed with Hawke's Bay. So that's the basis on which we're going into those discussions with Tairawhiti in Auckland. And they're going well, but they've got a little bit more to go. I appreciate that there's infrastructure and resilience spending that you are contributing to in a big way, but when it comes to the actual cost-sharing for houses and the buyouts of those Category 3 houses, are you considering the respective councils differing financial positions in those negotiations? The way we've tried to approach this is to have a principled basis that can be applied across the country, but then have conversations with those councils about the financing arrangements that they might need. It'll be absolutely obvious to everybody that Tairawhiti District Council is in quite a different financial position to Auckland, and so we have to work with Tairawhiti around how we can support them to have the kind of recovery and rebuild that they want. So to me there's two stages in many ways in this conversation. There's an argument or a discussion or a negotiation about about funding and then there is a discussion potentially about financing, about the way that we might be able to support a council, especially one like the Gisborne District Council who are who are a small unitary authority. Mm. So 
We're trying to apply a principle basis to the negotiation, but clearly there are different circumstances that have to be dealt with in each area. I mean, arguably, Auckland Council is not exactly awash with cash at the mm. moment either. Strong asset base, yes. uh, large rate payer base. But how many houses need to be bought out? Yeah, well, this is the thing, and at the moment that's still a piece of work that Auckland's doing. And look, I don't want to belittle what Auckland has to face here and what the homeowners in Auckland are going through. Uh, and as I say, we're trying to apply a principled basis to the cost-sharing arrangement. So how many nationwide do you expect to, to the numbers? Out? The numbers are moving around as more work is done on the categorisation. We've got about 260 in the Category 3 category in Hawke's Bay, uh, probably between 40 and 50 in Tairawhiti that we're just working through now. Auckland, that work is still ongoing. It'll be in the hundreds, obviously, um, because we know about some of those communities, but we haven't been able to quite get to that figure while Auckland Council uh, goes through their work. I, I know how tricky it is getting to a point of certainty, but you have hundreds of homeowners, thousands of New Zealanders who are in a state of flux at the moment, who are just treading water, waiting to know how they're going to go ahead with their lives. When will we have certainty in Tairawhiti, Auckland and Hawke's Bay for all of those affected homeowners? Well, obviously for Hawke's Bay, um, you know, we've done... We've done the deal now with the councils. As I say, my expectation that I've been given is, is within about a month that there'll be offers there for the buyouts there. Uh, Tairawhiti, I think we're pretty close. That won't be far away and should end up on a similar time scale. Auckland, the scale's bigger. Um, there's also us needing to work through their make space, Making Space for Water programme that they've got, which is an existing programme around... Um, where they're going to um, have future development. So I'd like to think we can get that resolved, obviously, in the next month or so, because we've got a certain event in October and it would be good to get it all done before then. Let's talk holes. ACT and New Zealand First both claim you're facing a massive revenue shortfall, $20 billion and $30 billion respectively. The Crown revenue to the end of May was more than $2 billion lower than previously forecast because of corporate tax intake. Do you have a revenue shortfall that exceeds your most recent publicly available forecasts? Well, the most recent publicly available forecast is the most recent publicly available forecast, and those are those ones from May that were put out in July. So no, I don't have any updated forecasts from then. There's quite a big difference, Jack, though, isn't there, between $2 billion and $20 or $30 billion. And it does strike me that at the moment it seems that people can just make a claim with any old thing attached to it, and then I have to respond to that. Happy to respond to say that, you know, those figures in May are the ones we've got. Now, the final year's accounts will be put forward in the prefu in September. It's about a month away from now, and everybody will be able to see the situation then. Do you expect it to be worse than $2 billion at that point? It's hard to know. I mean, obviously, the economy broadly has deteriorated since we did the budget forecast, or the Treasury did the budget forecast, uh, and corporate tax is that area. When you look at the tax uh, take that we're getting in terms of personal tax, mm. um, that's kept up about where it was meant to be. GST, about where it's meant to be. So it's quite a specific area, um, and we'll have to see where that lands. Yeah, but what are you expecting at the moment? Well, clearly it's still a very difficult time for businesses and house and so we'll, we'll it sounds like you're expecting it to be greater than two billion. I'm, you know, look, I, for the prefood, I'm genuinely not making that prediction. Um, I know it's a very difficult time. I mean, one thing I can say for sure is what we have done in terms of our spending, we're actually tracking under where it was forecast. This is about the revenue forecasts that Treasury make, yeah. and obviously they get updated at prefood. I'm going to get to your spending in a moment. Has Treasury expressed concerns about the pace of debt accumulation? No, not at all. No. You met with public service bosses twice in the last week and urged no, I them. Didn't. Twice in the last two weeks? No. How many times have once. you met with public service? Okay. You met with public service bosses once in the last week. 
Did you give those bosses a specific savings target? We, in the budget in May, established what's called the Fiscal Sustainability and Effectiveness Programme. We announced that in the budget. It's there in black and white. And we said then that we would have an ongoing programme to drive efficiencies and to find savings within the budget because we've got to get ourselves back to a more sustainable fiscal position after all of the money that we put in in COVID. We just have been discussing with the public service that for some time, and that meeting was about how the next stages of that go forward. Uh, this is effectively a budget-like process, and it's subject to all of that confidentiality. And when um, things are finalised, we'll be in a position to. Talk Did you about give them it. a specific savings target? We discussed the, the program, which includes where we make savings, where we make efficiencies. We're still working that through. Uh, Did you give them a specific savings target? That's a a straight question that deserves a straight answer. It's part of a budget process, Jack, and we are definitely working with public service bosses to make sure that we drive the savings and efficiencies that I think New Zealanders would expect us to do. This is not a bad thing, Jack. This is a good thing. This is the fact that as the government we're saying we know times are tough out there for New Zealanders, we know we've got targets that we need to meet, And we're working with the public service on how to do that. I set two fiscal rules in 2022. One was to keep net debt below 30% of GDP. The other was to get ourselves to an Obergell surplus across the four-year forecast period. I think it's a good thing that I'm working with the public service to achieve that. Then give us the transparency around it. Because it's not finished yet, Jack, so there's nothing to give you. So so all I'm asking is, have you given them a specific target? I'm not even asking for the specific target. Have you given those public service We're working through with public service agencies what we expect of them. Further hard choices may be required as we navigate a pathway through this deteriorating global environment. Those are your words this week. What are those further hard choices? Well, that's exactly the processes that we're working through. When we did the budget in May, we had $4 billion worth of savings. That represented a series of hard choices. We now have to look again at what we're doing to reach the targets and the goals that we've set ourselves. So that means ministers and agencies and departments looking at their programs, seeing if there are things that they can deliver more efficiently, seeing if they can prioritise or sequence things. All of those are hard choices. All of those are things that people want to do because we think they're good projects to do. We think the people who are delivering them are important and doing important work. There's one thing I will say for sure, though, Jack, is our priority as we come to this election, is the delivery of good, strong public services that the frontline services people need and deserve in health and in education and housing and social development. That's what we're prioritising. And I think this is a message for all parties in this election. It's not going to be possible to make big promises. We're already in a difficult situation for many New Zealanders. We're trying to support them through. Globally, the economy is starting to deteriorate further. The IMF told us about China the other day. We have to take note of that. And so, for me, I'll prioritise getting those services out there to New Zealanders before I would, for example, tax cuts. There will be questions for other parties heading into the election, I'm sure. (laughs) As Finance Minister, you talk often about fiscal discipline, but let's consider your record. Heading into the 2020 election, you published a fiscal plan with $7.8 billion in new spending over this term. Your actual new spending in your budgets has roughly doubled that, $14.5 billion, $14,500 million in total new spending under Labor this term, record operating allowances in your budgets. What responsibility do you take for the deteriorating fiscal position? As I said before in my answer to you, the situation we're dealing with now is not about our spending. It's about the forecast revenue that Treasury said was coming in. Since we made that plan in 2020... How, how hang on, hang on, hang on. on you, the last year? He asked, he, no, you asked the question. No, but I mean, I mean when, you, when you're spending, that requires borrowing, right? Borrowing costs in the last year are, what, more than $3 billion alone? Yeah, but 
They are as a percentage of GDP. Three thousand million dollars. As a percentage of GDP, one about one point seven, one point eight percent. But you asked me a question about that fiscal plan in 2020 and what happened since. Delta outbreak, Omicron outbreak, Cyclone Gabriel, supply chain issues out of COVID. We've had to deal with all of those things, and I'm proud that we supported New Zealanders. Secondly, look at the macroeconomic outcomes. That's what the allowances and all of that are about, driving us towards that. We still have among the lowest debt in the developed world. We have unemployment at record low levels. We've got an economy that's 6% bigger than it was before COVID. So for sure, we've had to invest to support New Zealanders, and we have a plan to bring our spending back down to more sustainable levels. But if people are saying we shouldn't have done that, that we should have stuck to the letter of that plan, despite all of those events that occurred, that would have caused a lot of heartache for New Zealanders. It's the quality of the spend that's contended, though. Well, yep, sure. 77,000 kids lifted out of poverty, 12,000 new state houses, um, 30,000, 60,000 actually, more apprentices. They are good outcomes. We have some massive expenses down the line. Climate change, a significant increase in defence and security spending, a $200 billion infrastructure deficit. In five years, more than a million New Zealanders will be over the age of 65. I think there's about $40 billion wriggle room available before you hit that self-imposed debt limit that you referenced. How will it be possible to fund those things in the future without cutting public services, massively increasing revenue or lifting the debt limit? Well, these are the challenges that we have to face. A big part of that is the way in which we sustainably grow the economy. That's why we have an economic plan that is about growing higher wage jobs, about you know finding the way through the climate change challenge and finding those opportunities that will, will give us good, sustainable economic growth. So that's part of the picture. Another part of the picture is making sure that we're disciplined in what we do do now, that we find efficiencies. And you're right, the balance sheet's there. good example of that is what we've done with infrastructure. In this budget in May... In in 2023, we put in the National Resilience Plan. That's actually using that balance sheet to try and address some of those infrastructure needs. So it will be difficult, it will be challenging, and over the next couple of decades, there will be questions that governments have to answer about how we sequence out that work. But I think we've made a good start in it. After the break, tax. Boondoggles can be worked through. Can they? How exactly might a government theoretically manage the removal of GST from fresh fruit and veggies? No mai hoki mai We welcome back to the second part of our interview with Finance Minister Grant Robertson. Did you support David Parker's decision to step down as Revenue Minister? It's not a matter for me. That's a matter between David and, and, um, and the Prime Minister. You're the finance minister. You work hand in glove with him. And I worked well with David and I enjoyed doing that. Um, He made his decision, the Prime Minister accepted that decision and we just get on with it. Why is removing GST on food a boondoggle? (laughs) Look, um, I've made those comments around that in the past and you can look around the world and see some issues where those sorts of schemes have been put in place. Equally, you can see that many countries in the world have those schemes. And so, you know, Mm. boondoggles can be worked through. Uh, Jack, you know that once upon a time someone called the Sydney Opera House a boondoggle, and I think everyone likes it So how would you work through a theoretical boondoggle? (laughs) Um, You work through and you find out ways of doing things and and implementing things that address the issues that that people are concerned about. So for GST on, say, I don't know, food... How would, you, how would you go about working through a boondoggle for GST? Oh, well, that's something we can discuss another day. What is to stop um, supermarkets, theoretically, 
from holding on to some of those GST savings if GST were to be removed. And obviously we're in a hypothetical discussion here, Jack. But, you know, one of the things I'm really pleased about is the work we've done in terms of um, following through on the Commerce Commission's uh, inquiry into supermarkets, and that includes, for example, bringing in a commissioner who we can actually work through for some of these issues, using some of the new tools that are going to be put in place, like the code of conduct that supermarkets will be under. So theoretically, there are more tools available now for people to be able uh, to, to look at an issue like that if it were to happen. Even though fruit and vegetables are obviously affected by seasonal pricing, so they don't have stable prices at the best of times. Mm. That's a fact. Yeah, and, and, and so, so you're confident that, say, someone overseeing the supermarket sector could make sure... That all the I, I mean, as I say, this is a theoretical conversation, but all I would say is in other jurisdictions around the world, people have found their way through mm. the issues that arise. In other jurisdictions around the world have changes to sales tax when it comes to fresh fruit and vegetables disproportionately benefited higher-income people? Again, you know, there are a lot of different studies about these things. There are a lot of different ways that um, different policies can be implemented. If it comes to pass, we can have those discussions. Yeah, but uh, uh, internationally, what's been your experience? Well, <laughs> I haven't done it internationally. Well, obviously, but you've kept an idea. What, what on I would say is that internationally, it's obviously been proven to be possible, hasn't it? It's been proven to be popular. Possible. What's, what's proved possible? The ability to be able to have differentiation in terms of um, the equivalence of GST. But, but who's benefited, higher income or lower income people? I haven't done enough work to look at that. Why were you allowed to research a wealth tax and a capital gains tax as part of a tax switch, only to have that proposal scrapped by the Prime Minister? I think at every budget um, in the history of budgets, ideas get floated. Um, I think it was about 2013, um, Bill English and Michael Woodhouse did a whole lot of work around um, stamp duty, six or seven months' worth of work, and it didn't come to fruition. Uh, that's the nature of the work we did. We started that piece of work off under Jacinda Ardern's leadership. Chris Hipkins was prepared to you know, let us complete that piece of work, and then Cabinet came to a decision not to go ahead with it. It's actually not that unusual to have an idea explored through a budget process that doesn't come to but, fruition. I mean, like looking at a CGT or even a wealth tax isn't a, an idea that needs a great deal of exploration. So what new information <laughs> can... <laughs> I'm not sure that's true, Jack. These are pretty big and fundamental changes to our tax system. So, so, so what new pieces of information came through in that work that, that led Cabinet to believe now was not the right time to introduce those changes? Oh, I think what Cabinet felt was that we were in a very uncertain and volatile time. Um, you know, we've mentioned a little bit before about the international situation that we're facing, coming off the back of COVID. And I think Cabinet's belief was that now is a time for stability. We certainly, you know, very much all agree that now is not the time for unfunded tax cuts. What was being looked at here was a tax switch, a fiscally neutral tax switch. What I see from the National Party at the moment is unfunded tax cuts and there's certainly no room for those. We simply didn't have the mandate. That was a line from the Prime Minister. No mandate? Do you agree with that? Well, of course. According to a News Hub poll in May, 53.1% of New Zealanders support a wealth tax versus 34.7% who don't. Well, with great respect to News Hub polls, they're not the things that create mandates. What about majority governments? Well, majority governments campaign, don't they, on particular policy programs? Well, apparently we'd not. We'd be having a different. Apparently not. We'd be having we'd be having a very different conversation had we gone and implemented that right now, and you would be telling me we hadn't uh, we hadn't promised it. Having said all of that, um, obviously, you know, cabinet's made its decision, and and I'm focused on making sure that we we get ourselves back into How government to deliver our program. I don't discuss what happens inside the Cabinet room. We did a lot of work on, on the proposal. No, I'm not asking about anyone else's position, but you as Finance Minister, someone who came to Parliament with very principled position when it comes to tax policy and inequality and the ways in which you might address that in New Zealand, 
principal positions on fairness. How hard did you fight? I fight hard for everything that I believe in, but the thing I fight the hardest for is to make sure that we're here to deliver to New Zealanders a fairer and more equal society. You know, just in this budget, we, we had the trustee rate go to, you know, up to 39 cents to fill a gap there. We're building those state houses. We're lifting kids out of poverty. We're, we're investing in our health and education systems. The other things that mean a lot to me, Jack, and I'll always fight hard for those. Is it more important to win elections or to stick to your principles? It's important to be able to deliver to people on the basis of our principles. Is it more important to win elections? It's not a, it's not a dichotomous question, Jack. You don't believe so? I believe that you can stick to your principles and be able to deliver. Those two things go together. I believe the things we've delivered over the last six years for New Zealand are wholly in line with the principles of the Labour Party. Like I said before, I've been around for a long time, Jack, policies sometimes you get through and sometimes you don't. Every minister's experienced that. I believe in what we are doing here and I believe in the good we can do for New Zealand in the future. Your governments have ignored the major recommendations of your tax working group. There is no comprehensive capital gains tax, no wealth tax, your income insurance policy has been scrapped. You repeatedly reintroduced the petrol tax cut in the face of what your government said is a climate crisis. Are those the decisions of a Labour government that is putting principle ahead of polling? I'll tell you what this Labor government has been able to do. It's been able to consistently lift the incomes of the lowest income New Zealanders. We've made sure that we've lifted family tax credits. We've made sure that we've lifted the minimum wage on a consistent speak, that basis. That wasn't my question. But what I'm saying to you is those, those things decisions? are important and principled decisions. We have, as we all governments have to do, have to take decisions to be able to keep moving forward. I'm part of a cabinet. I'm part of collective responsibility. What I look at is the greater good that we have achieved, and I'm very proud of it. Are you committed to another full term in Parliament, regardless of the result in October? I'm running to be re-elected as the Minister of Finance. That is my goal, and that's the only thing I've got in my head at the moment. If Labor finds itself out of government in October, will you consider your Purely future? hypothetical. I'll consider that if that comes to pass, but my only consideration right now is being part of being re-elected in the Chris Hipkins-led government. Finance Minister Grant Robertson. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please koordinate my. These are our main platforms. You can email us, you can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. Shortly we will ask what's on the shopping list for a future-focused defence force. But next, migrant workers employed to work on the government redevelopment of Waikaria Prison allege they were mistreated and abandoned. Their story next. Kia ora koutou, welcome back. After the COVID-19 lockdowns, the government promised an immigration reset to help set up New Zealand as a high-wage, high-skill economy. But critics say one visa in particular is having the opposite effect. The accredited employer work visa has seen tens of thousands of migrants move to New Zealand in the last year. But migrant workers who came in under the visa and were employed by a subcontractor to work on a major government project say they were exploited and abandoned. We met them in a dark flat on the outskirts of Hamilton. It's one of those places where somehow it seems even colder inside than it is out. Sharing a bedroom to try and save money. My name is Zhao Yao. And fast running out of options. My name is Fu Hai. Zhao Yao and Fu Hai are half a world away from their families in Jiangsu province and in a world of trouble. 
They told me that New Zealand is looking for workers like us, and they pay really high wages and salaries, even higher than what we have earned in Japan and Singapore. And if we can stay in New Zealand working long term, we'll have the opportunity to obtain green card residency, and both our wives and kids can come to New Zealand. It was March when the two men arrived in New Zealand, having paid a Chinese agent more than $16,000, about 10 months' salary back in China, for an accredited employer work visa to work construction for a New Zealand subcontractor. I believed it was a good opportunity, but I do not think so now. Q&A has seen the men's documents. They both signed contracts with an Auckland-based company promising $25 an hour for a minimum of 30 hours' work every week. And upon arriving in New Zealand, they immediately began working here, the billion-dollar redevelopment of Waikaria Prison near Te Awamutu. We only worked for eight weeks after we arrived in New Zealand, and then after eight weeks, we were out of a job. Having worked 55 hours most weeks for their first two months in New Zealand, one day it all changed. I remember that on the 13th of May, I was still working on the construction site in the morning. And when it was approaching the lunch break, somebody from the project team told us, you do not need to come back to work tomorrow, without providing any reasons. The subcontractor who'd sponsored the men's visa sent the two men messages. It was in the evening I received his text message saying, you do not need to come back to work tomorrow. You did not perform well. You were kind of lazy. And how did it make you feel? I could not believe that because I believe I can handle all kinds of work I was assigned to and I was not a lazy worker. And without any warning, he just asked me to go away. I just cannot accept that. Without notice and without pay for dozens of hours they'd already worked, Xiao Yao and Fu Hai say they were told not to return to work and their boss promptly stopped replying to their messages. We are seeing an absolute mushrooming of this. I know that Immigration New Zealand will say that what's actually happening is they're just reporting, they're getting more reports of this. However, those of us who've been in the industry for a long time um, have never been exposed to this much. Immigration advisor Katie Armstrong is one of several in the sector raising concerns about migrant worker exploitation under the accredited employer visa. We're all getting reports of jobs for money scams. That, that's at the core of the industry's concerns. Migrants are paying for jobs and this system, the accredited employer work visa, was introduced precisely um, billed as a system that would either cut out or reduce migrant exploitation, and we're seeing the reverse. The visa was introduced in July last year under then-Immigration Minister Michael Wood. To qualify, employers have to show their business is viable and that a job has been advertised adequately in New Zealand before being filled by a temporary migrant. We have had an immigration system in the past that, frankly, was very focused on maximising the volumes of very low-wage workers coming into New Zealand. That opened up avenues for exploitation. It was bad for those people. And actually, it was bad for our economy. Since it was introduced, 77,000 migrants have come in under the accredited employer visa, with 27,000 accredited employers. There's been approximately 900 individual complaints received across the Labour Inspectorate and Immigration New Zealand, and we're currently 
investigating 164 employers of those 77,000. As far as I'm aware, only one company has had their accreditation uh, taken away. So if you are a business looking to exploit migrants, well, you'll carry on doing it, won't you? Because you know you're going to get away with it because the checks and balances are not in place. But critics say there aren't enough checks on any side. Insufficient checks on employers? All of us have been pretty shocked to see some of the companies that have managed to slip through the net. And insufficient checks on the skills and experience of migrants coming in under the visa. You only need to Google, uh, come to New Zealand, and it will throw you up a whole lot of ads saying no English required, no qualifications required, no skill required, pathway to residence. All of these uh, very bad actors luring people here on false pretenses. The government are responsible for the exploitation that's happening at the moment at a scale that we've never seen. We will investigate those allegations and that is part of what we're looking at going forward. We are quite well resourced and we have recently increased the number of labour inspectors and investigators to deal with these cases. Like many large-scale projects, the Waikiria prison redevelopment was delayed because of COVID-19. Migrant workers are critical for projects like this and making up for lost time. And since they became eligible under the accredited employer visa, more than 10,000 migrant construction workers have entered New Zealand. Construction workers like Xiao Yao and Fu Hai. The main contractor at Waikiria Prison confirmed to Q&A it stopped working with the subcontractor who employed the men in mid-May. But even though they're eligible to transfer their visa, for these two it hasn't proved easy. We did try to look for a new employer. It was only during the interview with the new employer. The employer asked us, for you, because you're holding this kind of visa, we need to have your tax records to be able to hire you. But we did not find any tax records at all for you guys, so we cannot recruit you. Xiao Yao and Fu Hai claim they had tax deducted from their pay by their employer, but they say the IRD has no record of them working in New Zealand. We tried to check the tax return record, nothing at all. So I believe he kept all the tax money in his own pocket. Right, we just managed to get a hold of the subcontractor who brought the men to New Zealand. He's now stood down as the company director and he wouldn't appear on camera for an interview. We asked him if he underpaid his staff, if he breached their employment contracts, if he failed to register them with the IRD and if he withheld tax from their pay without actually paying it and he didn't deny any of the allegations. But he said his company has run out of money. He also told us he's brought in 12 workers from China under the accredited employer visa. The employer has paid some money to his former workers, and though he says he's committed to helping them, Zhao Yao and Fu Hai are thousands of dollars in the hole with limited options. There are lots of people who are in a similar situation to us. In this same property, there are other workers holding the same visa as us. Some of their problems are even worse than ours. For example, one employee, right after they landed in New Zealand, they never met their employer because the employer's company actually did not exist. Xiao Yao and Fu Hai came to work at Waikiria Prison, but now they're the ones who've ended up trapped. They're surviving winter on money sent from their families back in China. They say they don't want their loved ones to worry, and so far they haven't had the heart to tell their families the truth. 
Now, since we began reporting this story, MB has opened two investigations into the subcontractor who hired the men. To be clear, there is no accusation that the main contractor at Waikiria Prison has been involved in the mistreatment of migrant labour. But I asked Immigration Minister Andrew Little if migrants are being mistreated on other government projects. I'm not sure how prominent it is on government projects. Um, any migrant worker exploitation is, is appalling and totally unacceptable. Um, and that's why, um, in terms of the immigration policy reset that we've done, um, the visas that we now have under which you know, migrant workers can work, um, provides some um, measures to mitigate the risk of migrant worker exploitation. We now have more information about the employers who are accredited employers. Um, for those who are victims of um, uh, migrant worker exploitation, we now have a very um, quick and easy way to um, uh, get off the accredited employer visa onto a different visa that facilitates them to be able to get other work and affords them that protection. So 27,000 employers in New Zealand have received accreditation under the accredited employer visa. How many have had their accreditation checked? Um, well, the, the checks are ongoing. So um, across all that 27,000 employers, the aim is to check 15% of them. It differs from the, uh, the nature of the employer. So all labour hire agencies, 100% of labour hire agencies who are accredited employers are checked um, in the course of a year. 30% of franchisees who are accredited employers are checked. And then um, across the rest of them makes up the 15% the in total. And it is 15%? That's the that's the target. That's for the target. So how many have been checked? I, I can't give you that figure. Um, the, so you said the, an estimate. So it was about six hundred and twelve. Said an estimates this week. Six hundred and twelve. Yeah, the, the accredited employer work has been in place for a year. So um, those checking systems and and actually getting the people on board to do the checking is been ramping up. We now have three hundred people dedicated right. to immigration uh, checking. But fifteen percent is the target. Six hundred and twelve of twenty seven thousand is two percent. Um, yeah, as I say, so that visa has been in place for a year and uh, that 27,000 has ramped up over the course of that year. Yeah. So, uh, and, and indeed the staffing of the um, immigration services has been ramping up over the course of that year as well. Do you, so, have, do you have enough staff to actually achieve that 15% target? Well, we're at about 300 now um, and they are you know, routinely doing checking. Um, they well, they're not. Doing... I mean, 2% two, two is... Is poor. If the target is 15% and 2% is what we're achieving? Um, yeah, so you talk about the 27,000 employees, that's what it is now. It wasn't that six months ago, mm. it wasn't that 12 months ago because the visa's only been in place mm. for 12 months. But so you're seeing the accreditation be... numbers come through in real time? Um, yes, and, I, and we're also seeing the complaints come through about migrant worker exploitation. I think one of the things we did too is to put in place the means to make it easier to make to register complaints. And that's why even before the accredited employer work visa came in place, even a year before that, when we put in place new channels to raise complaints, we saw a spike in complaints. We, we always suspected that the level of migrant worker exploitation was hugely underreported. That has been borne out by um, the level of reporting we're now seeing, um, that is the system working and doing its job. So how many of those 27,000 employers have had accreditation removed? Um, uh, a small number have been. I don't know the precise number. It would be a small number, um, but that is the Fewer response. Fewer than 10? I, I couldn't tell you the number, but that is the response. Erica Stanford says one. Well, I wouldn't trust anything Erica Stanford says because she routinely gets her facts wrong 
or she uses stuff that is, you know, years and years out of date. But, but you say it's you say it's few though. It's it's a it'll be a small number, um, and but losing accreditation is one of the responses that happens for employers who breach their obligations to their workers. Associated with that is getting those workers onto either the um, migrant worker exploitation protection visa or the dismissed worker visa, and that gives them um, scope then to get other work. And they are protected. During but if the just two percent of these employers are actually having their accreditation checked, and just a handful, let's say, have had it removed, it's hardly sending a message that we're protecting migrant workers. I reject what you're saying. Um, so, uh, well before we had the accredited employer work visa, we've had other forms of visa, the essential skills work visa, for example. Um, we've had migrant worker exploitation, horrific stuff. But we know that it was underreported, hugely underreported. As when the borders were closed and as we were gearing up for the borders to open and the labour market um, doing what it needed to do, which is to secure works from offshore, we put in place a regime that made it easier to complain about migrant worker exploitation, made it easier for immigration to know the employers who were employing migrant labour um, and so that when there were complaints, that information was immediately available for um, immigration inspectors to respond. I appreciate that you weren't the minister at the time, but the government faced significant pressure to loosen immigration settings post-COVID. What is the risk that speed has come at the expense of more thorough checks that would protect migrant workers? Um, I don't think uh, that has been the case at all. We've put in place a set of uh, requirements, including information disclosure requirements, declarations that are required. Um, and to the extent that some people complain that a declaration isn't enough, actually making a declaration that turns out to be false is a very serious matter. Mm -hmm. That is the basis on which an employer would lose their accreditation. Um, but the critical thing was to make sure that we're able to respond effectively to the workers who are victims of migrant worker exploitation and we've got the means in place to do that in a way that we never did before. Um, it is interesting, our political opponents um, who now are... Uh, uh, talk a lot about migrant worker exploitation literally six months ago were saying that the system has too much red tape too much bureaucracy and needs to speed up uh, I am satisfied with the measures we have in place and the protections that are afforded to workers migrant worker exploitation is going to happen, we need to make sure our response is effective and protects those people Net migration is at roughly 65,000 for the year to the end of March. The accredited employer visa has been extended to five years and there are undoubtedly skilled migrants who are coming in under that visa. But there are also people coming in as lawn mowers, as fast food cooks, as road traffic controllers, hardly skilled. How is that consistent with rebalancing and resetting New Zealand's immigration to foster a high-wage, high-skill economy? So we knew that when uh, once we opened the borders and we had the labour market um, shortages that we did, um, we, you know, we were going to have to fill some of those gaps. Some of them were, were going to be semi-skilled roles, um, such as the ones you've talked about. So that was always in contemplation, and people doing coming from overseas to do that work are typically on shorter-term visas. But also, we, what we put in place is some um, minimum remuneration requirements that are not just. They the don't apply rate. to everyone, though, though. No, and there are sector agreements where there are ex exclusions. That is a short-term measure, as we are in a transition from closed borders, a labour market with a lot of shortages. We need to fill those gaps, but we have a set of um, uh, immigration policies and principles in place that takes us towards immigration being what it should be for, which is to. Um, meet those more high-skilled needs that 
a small country like ours is never going to produce all um, or, or the need for. So um, I'm satisfied that the settings are right, but equally I acknowledge we are in a transition where we are, um, we are moving into you know, the ideal situation, which may be another you know, two, three, four years away yet. That is Immigration Minister Andrew Little. One final note. After we spoke to the Minister, we asked MB to confirm the exact number of employers who've had their accreditation revoked or removed. Erica Stanford had heard of one. Andrew Little said a few. Of the 27,000 employers who have received accreditation in the last year, two have had theirs revoked. Two of 27,000. Stay with us. Q&A is back after the break. The impacts of climate change and the rise of China are set to dramatically change the geopolitical environment in the Pacific and have the potential to impact New Zealand's national security. That is the conclusion of the Defence Policy Strategy Statement, which is one of several documents released on Friday as part of the government's ongoing defence review. The statement says New Zealand should be open to multilateral agreements like a Tier 2 status with the AUKUS Agreement. In his role as Defence Minister, Andrew Little told me the changing world will require a more proactive defence strategy. Well, we know two, two big threats that we face, or two big challenges we face, are first of all the impact of climate change, not just on us in New Zealand, but uh, across the Pacific. And we've, we've traditionally been available to our Pacific partners uh, for humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. Um, we expect that will be more frequent both here and in the Pacific, and so we need to gear up for that. And then the second is the, the, the strategic competition, as it's called. So um, the Pacific becoming, uh, or now more at the centre of um, sort of competing interests, and we need to understand what that means uh, for us and, and gear up for that. Some of that, uh, much of it, won't necessarily be played out in the Pacific. It might be played out in other parts of the world, and certainly Southeast Asia. Um, and we need to work with partners and be equipped to do so to deal with that. Are we combat capable as it stands? We are combat capable at the moment, um, but look, we've, we've had a couple of years of quite serious attrition. Um, we've had uh, a lot of skills levels hollowed out, and so um, that puts pressure on us, and we're, we're rebuilding. Um, but we need to both rebuild our personnel and their skills base, but we also need to think about the equipment that we've got We've got uh, equipment that will be coming to the end of its economic life over the next 10 years or so, particularly in our naval fleet, and we have to think about what we do as we replace those. What specifically will be required to make us combat ready in the future? Well, I think firstly, on, on, the, on the climate change response issues, we need to be able to deploy very quickly, certainly across the Pacific, mm. um, and so we need to make sure we, we can do that. Um, that'll be by, by both air and sea. Then, uh, in terms of being able to um, support partners or indeed um, protect our interests, for example, in the South China Sea, because a huge proportion of our ex exports go through that area. And so that if, if the consequence of tension in that area means that sea lanes get closed or slowed down, that we're equipped to be able to, um, to play our part in protecting our interests there. And what does that mean, specifically, in terms of equipment? Well, the Defence Capability Review will be um, their job, or that job of that exercise, is to determine what that is. Can you give us a sense, though, as to how that might shift from the current capacity we have? Yeah, I think a, a lot of the focus will be on, on our naval fleet. So we have, we have nine vessels in our Navy, six different classes. 
um, the question is whether it's sensible to have that many different classes of vessel. Mm. Um, and if we focus on the uh, cyclone response and climate change event response capability as well as being equipped to support partners mm. in other parts of the world, um, we might not have six classes of vessel. So it's, those are the questions that I think that will arise. Is it feasible, for example, that we might seek to replace our frigates with destroyers in the future? Let's see what the defence capability review exercise comes up with. But, but I, is that feasible from, from your understanding at the moment, l looking at the shift that will be required? Um, it's, it's not where I see things going, um, but you know, one of the reasons why we set out yeah. the strategy and, and the future force design principles is to inform the defence capability plan exercise. So we, let's see where that gets Yeah, but where, where do you see it going for, say, for example, the issues in the South China Seas? Um, again, I mean, we have we have two frigates at the moment that are capable of um, of going up into that area, and they do go up into that area uh, on a regular sort of basis. Um, we'll have our um, five power defence arrangement exercise up there later this year, and we'll have a frigate up there for that. Um, so they go up there. The question is, um, is when we looked at the across our total naval fleet, is 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 what we've got enough to equip us for what we think the future might hold? And it's is, not. So, so what would be what would be required? Do you think? Just just give us a sense as to the kind of shift you think. And I, I appreciate this hasn't been confirmed yet, and this work is still to happen. But clearly, you are foreseeing and anticipating a shift. So, so what would change? So that's where I'm, I'm a defence minister of civilian background. So I'm reliant on those with the technical expertise to give advice to the government of the day on. Um, on what future capability might look like or might entail to achieve the objectives that we set. If we are to change the number of classes when it comes to our naval fleet, what classes do you see us scrapping? Uh, look, we've got you know we've got um, inshore patrol vessels, offshore patrol vessels, the frigates. We've got the um, Canterbury um, multi-role vessel, Aotearoa, the Monoai. Um, those last three all have a, a, a more kind of utilitarian role, and then there's others equipped to do um, uh, policing of fisheries and interdictions and um, and uh, carry troops and and be involved in combat. I think what I'm looking for from the defence capability review is you know, what do those technical experts think the mix should be given what we've set out in our defence strategy and our future force design principles. What do you foresee as being the role of combat drones? Again, I, uh, I'm not close enough to the conduct of combat to know what role they would play. I certainly see a role for drones in um, intelligence, reconnaissance and surveillance and that's, they're widely used around the world for that, and I think we can make more use of that for us. In terms of combat, I don't have a view about that. If you consider our defence spending as a percentage of GDP, going from World Bank figures, and I accept that some of these figures are disputed, Australia spends about 2% of GDP on defence, the US 3.5, the UK 2.2, Chile 2, South Korea 2.8, New Zealand about 1.4. Why do we spend so much less and some of our closest partners when it comes to defence? I think that's been largely historical and I think we've had a defence force that largely does what you know, we have wanted it to do, um, including you know, what we do here locally in our region and what we do abroad. Um, but the reality is circumstances are changing. Um, so that's why I have foreshadowed that I, I expect, and it might be two or three or more budgets away, I expect there will be an increase in that proportion over time as we equip ourselves to deal with the full range of challenges that we know are either here or coming at us. Is it noticed 
that New Zealand spends less? Um, look, I think we get, you know, we get questions about what are our plans, what are our future plans. Mm. I think, and and we do our um, defence reviews and our defence capability plans on a periodic basis. We're now at a phase where we're we're doing that work because it, even you know, even compared to five years ago, circumstances have changed. So, um, and look, you know, defence is seldom ever cheap. So we, that's why I think it is important. Mm. Um, and particularly when it comes to future investment decisions, is that we do indicate what is informing those decisions, but when um, the government makes its decisions in a year or two years' time, people understand what sits behind it, but it'll be for the government at that time to make the choices about what it's prepared to spend to achieve what we want it to do. What country presents the greatest threat to security in our region? Um, look, I think... Uh, uh, <laughs> There are a number of threats in our region, and, and if it comes to other countries, there are a number of players who we have to be cognizant of. What, what country presents the greatest threat? Well, I'm going to say there are, there are a number. You know, we, we see what Russia is doing, we see how it conducts itself. We see what North Korea is doing, we see what China is doing. I mean, a country like China is, is interesting because it provides the huge opportunity, it's um, a central trading partner for us, mm. as it is for many countries around the world. It has a capacity and capability to work with the rest of the world on some of the big global challenges that we've got. Um, but it has a way of conducting itself um, that is not supportive of, for example, inst uh, international institutions. So it, it, doesn't, it doesn't actively support, for example, the Pacific Islands Forum. And we have to be cognizant of that. So I think um, with all those countries, but China is a country with whom we have a relationship, um, and with whom we have dialogue, um, who we have to continue to work with um, to, to minimise or mitigate kind of the worst aspects of the way they choose to conduct themselves abroad. Nikkei Asia reported this week that China is preparing for a possible blockade of Taiwan sometime in the near future. How likely is that scenario? Uh, look, that stuff gets talked about. I think what is very clear is China uh, has been, you know, for the last 20 years, been stepping up its military size and capability. Um, it is, you know, it's spending 10 times more now than it did uh, 20 years ago. Um, Had you, have you heard briefings about the risk of a blockade? Um, well, you hear uh, about various ambitions that China has, and they talk about having achieving a level of capability in 2027. Mm. Whether or not it wants to prosecute that capability is another thing entirely, and that's why the relationships count and dialogue counts too, not just the dialogue that we get to have, but actually the major powers ought to be in dialogue with each other. The US should be talking to China and it's, it's important for countries like New Zealand mm. to be urging those major powers to do so. That was a report in Nikkei Asia, a respected publication this week, so I just want to be totally clear. Have you had briefings about the risk of China instituting a blockade against Taiwan in the near future? I haven't had any briefings um, that is as specific as that. The briefings I've had relate to um, their capability, the growth in their capability, and where they want it to be by 2027. It's an interesting line in uh, the release this week. Building and sustaining a public conversation on national security by being more upfront about what we are observing. What have you observed that the New Zealand public perhaps isn't sufficiently aware of at this moment? I think, well, I, it's an observation I have made for some time, is that I don't think we have necessarily had a, a particularly 
well-informed debate about national security generally and, to some extent, defence. Um, we can we all see kind of the physical elements of each of those sort of functions, but we we don't have a, a deep-seated discussion about um, you know, the, the policy or strategic issues that underpin it. I think the Royal Commission of Inquiry into the Mosque attacks has been really helpful in urging um, the government of the day to, to actually now be more open. Mm. We've, est we've established Hefenua um, Tarukura, the research centre on national security issues, mm. particularly on um, terrorism and counter-terrorism. Um, and I think you're finding ministers and the Prime Minister now more willing to talk about national security as an issue and defence as part of that. And these documents today are, I think, demonstrate a willingness to start getting out there and saying, here's the thinking, and that thinking follows some level of engagement, but let's have the debate, let's have the discussion. Uh, OK, on that then, what would it take for New Zealand to justify lifting its ban on nuclear ships? Uh, well, my own view is I think that is so innately part of New Zealand now, and, and I think it's an important um, moral stand that we take to the rest of the world uh, on nuclear capability. Um, Talk about nuclear power rather than nuclear weapons. I do, here, right? nuclear power. Well, again, um, when it comes to um, nuclear powered ships, yeah. is there any foreseeable scenario in which New Zealand could justify lifting its ban on nuclear powered ships? No, I don't see that happening. It's, it's a, when we talk about military capability, we have made the decision that we are not going to promote and encourage nuclear capability, whether it's armaments or um, nuclear propulsion. Um, that is our stance. I don't see that changing, and I certainly, and the Labor Party, certainly will not be promoting any change in that respect. When it comes to the national security strategy, what are the most prominent vulnerabilities in our preparation for and defence against potential terrorist attacks? Um, I think it's the it's awareness, it's understanding, and so that means you know we've got to make sure that um, our intelligence gathering is across the issues that, or the potential threats that we have. I think that was the point that the Royal Commission of Inquiry was making: is that um, we have our intelligence agencies, they are intelligence gatherers, but it's not their job to determine at a high level the more kind of strategic approaches that we take and the horizon scanning that should be happening. Um, so that is what we need. Are New Zealanders naive about the risks in our world? Look, I think there's a range of views that New Zealanders hold. Um, some I would describe as naive, others um, a little more well-informed. But I think what that points to is that you know, it's incumbent on the government of the day, I think, um, to get information out there, to get the government's thinking out there, and let's, let's have the debate, let's open it up for scrutiny. Defence Minister Andrew Little. We're back after the break. Cool motu. That is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thank you for watching. Nā mihi ki a koutou i ngā karere. Thanks for your feedback. Hei tērā wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.